0: You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I invite you to take out your sermon notes um, and your bulletin if you'd like uh, to follow along with the text a little bit more fully. There's a proverb I ran across last year as 2020 was flowering in all its glory. A friend who has become an enemy is an enemy for life. A friend who has become an enemy is an enemy for life. Why is this? Probably not true in every situation, but true in a lot of situations that when you want to have a friendship, which is a close relationship that you have, that you're bound to one another by common affection and common experiences, and then something goes wrong and ruins it, and that friend becomes an enemy. Well, that enemy tends to stay that way. Human relationships are tremendously powerful things, and when there is hostility and suspicion, we feel not just in our minds, not just in our our, our feelings, but in all of our being, we feel the damage of a strained relationship. We call it tension. And that's a pretty good example, right? Of, of We feel like we're being pulled tight when we're around people who are a source of a pain to us. And this is not just a problem that affects our bodies, our minds, but it affects all of who we are. And it affects the people around us, right? Uh, for some people, it's even like physical medical problems. When they're in, a com- in the company of someone who causes them anxiety, they feel... Digestive issues, heart, uh, heartaches, anxiety, heart rate problems. And I guess all of you kind of know this if you, if you have a coworker, or if you have a spouse or an ex-spouse or a child or a boss or a parent, someone with whom your relationship is strained and you know how it feels when you know you have to go near them. Because when a relationship goes bad, it poisons not just the relationship but everything around it. And you know this when you, if you've had a rough boss and you've been driving to work and you can feel your tension and your stress rise as you go to work. And sometimes the only remedy is physical separation, just staying away physically. Last week, we began looking at Genesis 3, the, tra- the crisis of the biblical story that explains how it all goes wrong. And we asked, how can this simple story of a serpent and Adam and Eve eating, a, eating an apple or eating a fruit or whatever, how can that actually be an answer or an explanation to the unspeakable tragedies of human history? How can we stand beneath the ashen skies of Auschwitz and say this is why people suffer? How can we stand next to the, child, the bed of a child who's dying with leukemia and say, well, Eve ate a fruit? And my hope over these two weeks has been to answer how actually this text does give a robust and deep and rich answer to that problem. It gives us a deep appreciation for the nature of what's wrong with this world if we're willing to let it speak and listen to it. And as we looked last week at Genesis 3, 1 through 7, what we saw is that the problem wasn't Eve getting tricked into kind of pressing some arbitrary cosmic kill switch that God put in the center just for fun, of his creation just for fun. But how Adam and Eve were led by the serpent into rebellion against God. By the serpent, rebellion against God's... Promise, And he, he did so with this simple promise, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. They were led to judge God's word, God's simple word of do not eat from this tree. And they said, no, we, we know better. We want to become gods ourselves. We want to be wise. We want to be in control. We want to be masters of good and evil. And this is nothing less than mutiny. Mutiny. Mutiny Officers staging a coup against their captain, human beings revolting against God's authority and, revol- and refusing to rule under God, and instead appointing themselves as the center, as the masters of good and evil. That's the crisis of the creation, is the mutiny of, crea- of the creator's image bearers. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this we turn today to what normally f- what follows. We often call it the curse. And what, we're gonna ho- what I ho- hope to help you see today is that the curse is not, first and foremost, a prescriptive word. I'm sorry. It's not, first and foremost, a performative word. That is, where God does something with a word. Right? When you say, I forgive you, you are, you are creating something new. You're forgiving a friend or whatever. When God said, let there be light, he was performing an action and creating light. But when the curse, he's not affecting something new. He is declaring what Adam and Eve have done. He is declaring and solidifying what Adam and Eve have done. So we want to understand how does human rebellion lead to creation falling apart. Because this rebellion of Adam and Eve led to the corruption of the entire cosmos. And that is because they are image bearers. The nature of the curse comes from the nature of what it means to be human and the nature of our rebellion. We are image bearers called to reflect God's love and order to creation. And we refuse to do it and we cho- chose to do it on our own terms and creation learned the lesson from us. We were called to lead creation under God, and we led instead in rebellion. And so creation rebels against us. That's to put it all in a nutshell. My hope today is to help you understand that and see that when you think about the tensest relationship you have, all the anxiety that comes when you think about someone with whom you have a very strained relationship, imagine that tension, that anxiety, that pain spread throughout all the world into every human relationship because that's what the curse ultimately is human rebellion brings alienation into every human relationship and instead of looking at it by going through the text i want to look at it in terms of the four key human relationships that we that we have here and the first is the alienation of our relationship with god the alienation of our relationship with god it's his word that they disobeyed it's his authority that you tempt, attempted to usurp Adam will be judged for listening to Eve's voice rather than God's voice. And so when they hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God. They hide themselves. First thing, before God has a chance to say one thing or another, they have fled. The one whose presence was supposed to be a source of life, right? And joy and meaning and purpose. Now he is perceived as a threat. Someone for whom they must hide. They don't know yet whether he's going to be angry. They assume. They don't know yet what he's going to say, but they don't actually care what he says anymore, do they? They've already decided they don't care what he says. They care about what they say. And so when God finally does speak to them and ask them and call them to account, he asks whether they've eaten. They admit that they have, but then they turn to accuse God. The man says, the woman whom you gave to me, the woman whom you gave to me, a good God wouldn't have given me such a wench. A good God would have been more thoughtful and more judicious in who he surrounded me with. The woman says, the serpent deceived me, your creature, your serpent deceived me. It's your fault, God. A better God, a wiser God, wouldn't have surrounded me with such a temptress or made such a crafty snake. It's ultimately on you. The buck stops with the creator who made this woman and this snake, and a better, wiser God wouldn't have done it. That's how they were led into temptation in the first place to judge God's word against the God in their mind. And they went with the God in their mind rather than the God who spoke to them. And so when the real God comes to speak, they do not want to hear what he has to say. They don't want to repent and be sorry. They haven't even imagined the possibility that maybe he'd be coming to reconcile them because they've already determined that he's an enemy who's been holding back on them, who wouldn't let them be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is all of us. This is, and we are all in this situation of alienation from God. We don't naturally want to hear God's word. And when we hear it, we perceive in it the judgment against sin. And we call it arbitrary. Who is God to judge us and to punish us? And even when we read the Bible, you can hear it in the way that when you read the judgment passages stand out to you so much more clearly than the promises of grace. Because our sinful human nature is so attuned to that antagonism with God. And you know this from your own relationships. When you're in a strained relationship, you interpret all their words in the worst possible light, don't you? All their actions become things that they are doing against you in your mind. And so for us, naturally, all God's words come to us as a threat, as something we interpret in their worst possible light. We hear God's law and we seek exceptions or we shift blame onto other people. And we refuse to accept that God has a claim on our being and our life. And this is because we have usurped God's role of judge in good and evil, and we want this role. We like this role, even if it means that we are judging ourselves as evil. Because that's actually the very first thing that happens in the story. They take from the tree. Their eyes are opened, and they realize that they are naked. They are alienated from themselves, from the self. The second form of alienation is to be alienated from yourself. Their eyes are opened. They realize they were naked. What What do you have to do to realize you are naked? You can't, or maybe let me put it this way. Let me ask it in God's, God asked, who told you you were naked? Who did tell them? Did the serpent? No. It wasn't, Eve didn't tell Adam. Adam didn't tell Eve. Each told himself or herself that he was naked. They realized, and and to see that you're naked means not just that, that you realize you don't have clothes on, but you see yourself in the eyes of another and as the source of shame, as something that needs to be covered up. Toddlers know when they are naked. Because, and they think it's hilarious because they run off through the house. <laughs> I, I've learned this. As adults, we get a little bit better at knowing what others are thinking about us. We get a little bit better at seeing ourselves through the eyes of another. And so when we see ourselves through the eyes of another as someone who is naked, we know we need to cover. We are an object of shame. We are an object of judgment. That one judges me as evil. And I need to cover myself. That's what Adam and Eve both do instinctively. They, they see themselves, they judge themselves through the eyes of another and they seek to cover themselves up. And so when God comes, they do the same thing. They've judged themselves naked, so they run and hide and flee. They don't wait for God to pronounce them guilty or even forgiven. They've rejected living by God's word and they refuse to live on anything other than their own judgment. And they've judged themselves naked because then when they judge themselves naked, they're in control. And we all know this alienation too. We call it conscience, actually, our internal judge of what is good and evil. And that conscience never gives up on judging us. It never fails to show us our neighbor who's a little bit better than us, to show us the standard that we could have done better. Some of us are more attuned to it than others. But our conscience is relentless at pointing out to us our nakedness, our inadequacies, our faithlessness. And most of the rotten things that we do are attempts to silence this conscience that we've got right we we look down on other people so we can tell our conscience i'm at least i'm not that hobo over there right we we malign and 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 say bad things so that in the eyes of our neighbor they can affirm us as better than that person who is so awful maybe we try to cover ourselves up with lots of good things and accomplishments look at all the money i have right or look how happy i am so we can try to get our conscience to agree that we are indeed good people Because our conscience comes to judge us and it continues to judge us. But we're also alienated from our bodies. You can see this in the the curse on the, the woman. That God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now this is a good Hebrew merism where it says the beginning and the end of a process. And it's talking about the whole thing. Because the word childbearing really is pointing more to conception. So I will multiply your pain in conception and in pain you will give birth. And this is a little bit surprising because... Normally we think about conception as not the painful part, right? But the whole thing is characterized by an internal pain. And in Hebrew, this word pain actually can refer to an internal anxiety or distress. The, the, the pain that you feel in your heart and your body when you have a strained relationship with someone. So your body now is going to be a source of anxiety for you. The whole process of bringing life into the world is gonna be fraught from beginning to end with anxiety and pain with physical pain, with emotional pain, with mental pain. It's all going to be against you. And this is a snapshot of the larger reality that our bodies that God made for specific good life-giving purposes now rebel against us, right? Our immune systems rebel and give us pain, arthritis. Our cells start duplicating and give us cancer. Our minds start getting all our hormones and chemicals out of whack and we go into depression and anxiety and dark thoughts because our bodies are no longer what God made them to be. We are alienated not only from our hearts and our conscience, but from our bodies. And this means that we're also alienated from our neighbors, our fellow human beings. This is what Adam and Eve see. As soon as they judge themselves through the eyes of one another as naked, they protect themselves. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, in recognizing themselves as naked and in judging themselves according to their newfound power, they instantly realize that the other person is now a threat to me. They judge me too, just like I judge them. And that means I have to protect myself. This is, and this is, what, keep in mind, in the text, this is not the feeling of, of, of shame before a stranger who walked into your house when you were naked. This is the shame of someone who formerly delighted in you. Adam rejoiced in Eve's beauty and likeness to himself, and now that delight has turned to shame. The relationship itself, which was once a good and life-giving thing, is now poisoned with judgment and bitterness, In other words, the other person who was given to me to image God and his love to me is now a threat to me, a disappointment, a combatant. And so Adam happily throws Eve right under the bus as soon as when God calls him to account. And it goes both ways. God declares that the whole marriage estate will be a place of conflict in 3.16. Your desire, Eve, shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Um, in, in the Hebrews, you probably know it as he, your desire will be for your husband. And it's, well, what does this mean exactly? In Genesis 4, um, it, talks, it uses the same phrase. And it's talking about sin's des- desire to master Cain. It says, your, its desire will be for you, Cain, but you must master it. So in other words, now the human relationship between man and wife will be the one of the wife wanting to master the husband, but the husband, in fact, dominating the wife. The husband, instead of imaging God and his creative ordering love, will be a tyrant and Eve will be resentful and rebellious. So the relationship that was once meant to be a mutual sharing of God's image of love will become a place of domination. And now all human relationships will be characterized by this basic question, who will be the master and who will be the slave? Who will be in charge? Who will be the strong? Who will be the weak? And tension and power and rivalry and bitterness suffuse every human relationship. People will judge other kinds of people or other individuals as as less than human and therefore expendable, and thus we have murder. Nations will judge other kinds of people as less than human, and so we will have war and genocide. Man will judge woman to be something other than a person, and so we will have pornography and rape. We will judge others as undeserving of their things, and so we will steal and covet. All human conflict is summed up in this basic alienation between the man and the woman— where the marriage relationship that God made as a source of love becomes a source of fear and bitterness and judgment and death. Which brings us to our last alienation, that with creation. Create the alien humankind is alienated from creation. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, God says to Adam. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. And out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The ground is going to rebel against you and resist you, just like you rebelled against me and resisted me. Here we can see how the curse is declarative of how, of how creation follows its leader, human beings. Because you imaged rebellion to creation, it learned the lesson and it's rebelling against you. Because you, Adam, tried to be your own source of life apart from me, it will now leave you to be your own source of life apart from it. The curse that God pronounces over all things is the declaration to Adam that since he refuses to reign under God, creation will refuse his reign and his rule. And all those specific ways that God made creation to be life-giving and ordered, they will now become Reflections of human rebellion and revolt. The ground will resist being cultivated. Only in pain will you wring life and food from its grasp. It was made to bring it forth all of its own. It will return the favor with the rebellious thorns and thistles. Goatheads and tackweed are a result of human sin. The body will weary and sicken and grow old. And here it's all summed up that dust from which you were taken the dust that was designed to naturally bring forth food for you to eat, the dust you were designed to cultivate and form, that dust will devour you. It will reclaim your body from which it was taken. You were made to live forever, but you will return to dust. And from this curse spring all the ailments of creation. It's not just thorns and thistles, but germs and disease that come from the outside and attack our body. It's the lions and the crocodiles that eat our children. Rebellious atmosphere that produces hurricanes and destroys homes and earthquakes that shatter buildings. This is the world that Adam and Eve have made. It is no longer fit for God to dwell. For every single relationship is now suffused with tension and anxiety. What was always made as friendship was now animosity and enmity. Every creature relationship Every heart and mind and body, every human relationship is now under the reign of death and chaos. And what's important to see here is that at no point is any of this arbitrary. This is not like they crossed the line and therefore God gives them a spanking. No, there's a natural causal link between being an image bearer who leads creation and being rebellious and having a rebellious creation. And that means that creation is no longer a fit place for God to dwell with his people. They can no longer dwell in God's presence. And so Adam and Eve are banished from the garden into exile. That is, they are are left to flee forever. They fled to hide from God, and now they will continue to flee. Because exile from God's presence is the just and gracious response to human rebellion. This is how the passage winds up. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now God acknowledges the change. They have become like God. They are now judges, usurping masters of good and evil, but they are sham judges. They are sham gods in rebellion against the source of life. So they cannot be allowed to live forever in a state of rebellion against the source of life. They are unclean and unholy and they have rebelled. And so he sends them east of Eden to work out their existence in the dust because they can't dwell in his presence anymore. That's another thing that the cherubim mean. We talked about how Eden is the Holy of Holies, God's presence. And in the temple, Eden, or sorry, sorry, the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant, which had cherubim on top of it. And so the cherubim show you that this is a thing of God's presence. Whenever the cherubim come into the story, they're not little babies with wings. They are like scary lion, snake, flying fire beings that guard the very presence of God. And now they show that the separation is complete. Friends have become enemies. And they, since they have declared God an enemy, he has sent them from his presence. And if you were an ancient Israelite and you were hearing this story from the mouth of Moses, this is the tragedy. This is the real thing that, that, that breaks everything else. This is the, the enduring grief that would cause them to weep and lament is that they lost the presence of God. It's like this. Suppose that you have a, a family who lives in a nice home and has a beautiful yard and the, and the husband and the wife get divorced. And they split apart and the children go off with the wife and they find themselves in the course of just a day moving from a big bedroom with a big yard and and, and a nice place. And now they're living in a two bedroom apartment with their mom. Will that child regret not having the toys or not having the yard? A little bit. But more, they're going to miss their dad. They're going to miss their dad. And that is what we did to creation. We drove God from it by fleeing from him and leading creation with it, with us. And so it would seem that creation is ruined. He created the, that the world to be a source of life and joy. He created marriage to be a reflection of his delight in communion and love. He created bodies and minds to participate in his act of creativity and ingenuity. He created the earth to feed and sustain us. He created the world to or, ordered in love so that he could dwell with us. And we gave him the finger and we fled. And we would think then that friends friends once become enemies would be enemies forever. But God has not given up. And he is able to reconcile enemies. And he wants to. He wants to because he actually loves his human creatures. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to dwell with his stupid, rebellious, self-absorbed, egotistical, dishonest, and half-hearted human beings. Because he actually does love us. He deeply loves us. And just as you love your children and you don't give up on them, even when they're estranged from you, God has not given up on you. His plan has always been to reconcile his creation to himself. God's plan is to reconcile all creation to himself. That's what he intended to do when he calls out to Adam, Adam, where are you? Why have you fled from me? Why are you running? Why don't you think that you can stand in my presence anymore? That's why he gives them garments of skins so he can give them protection so that he can continue to call for them as they eke out their existence in the cursed world. This is why he called their descendant Abraham and promised to bless the world through him. It's why he called Moses and Joshua and David and Isaiah to speak to his people and make them his people once again. It's why he called them to build this temple in which he could dwell and gave them sacrifices so that they could dwell without, while being holy. And he covered with the blood of of animals. And even though they rebel again and again and again, he continues to call. And he finally calls in the person of his son, Jesus, in which he came among us and dwelt among us himself to reconcile all things. Each of these four relationships, to reconcile us in each of these four relationships, Christ came. He reconciled us with God. That's what he did on the cross. That's the just judgment of God was, was put on our rebellion and Jesus hung it, carried it on himself as he hung on the cross. The faithful human response of imaging God. Jesus did it for us. And he calls to us from his cross. Where are you? Why are you fleeing from me? I am not your enemy anymore. I have given myself to reconcile you. Even though you want to be my enemy. God is not your enemy but a loving father. He reconciles us to ourselves. In Jesus we get a word of forgiveness. A word of forgiveness that lasts longer than our conscience. And that is more true than our conscience. Because our conscience will judge us each and every day. But Jesus' word, you are forgiven. Jesus' word, I have baptized you into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those words stand true. And we cling to them against our consciences, against the judgment and that relentless voice of good and evil that we have in ourselves that's constantly trying to put ourselves on our own terms and seize control. Jesus says, I forgive you. Trust my word. Leave your, leave your self judgment. I've declared you righteous and holy and forgiven. Trust me. And he's reconciled us with others. Because, see, when he takes away our need to self justify and our need to judge ourselves, he also takes away our need to judge our neighbors. If I don't have to justify myself when my neighbor attacks me, because I live in Jesus' justification, I don't need to attack my neighbor. And so, because Christ has forgiven me, I can forgive my neighbor. And Christ has reconciled enemies. He reconciles with me with those that I am estranged from. And all the hurt that you're holding against your enemy, Jesus took that from you. It went into him at the cross. And he tore down the dividing wall of judgment, making one new man in place of two. And finally, when he comes again, he will reconcile you with all creation. That's when he was doing his miracles of healing the sick and giving sight to the blind and raising the dead. He was enacting the first fruits of his kingdom in which creation will no longer be a place of death and pain and agony, but will be made new entirely. And there will be no more crying or pain, for the sons of God will be in their glory. See, when the voice of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, when it calls to us and it speaks to us, that life-giving image of God on us, the dust will give up its dead. And that dust will live forever again. Because God has not given up on his world He has not given up on you, and through his son Jesus, he is reconciling you and all things, things in heaven and things on earth, making peace through the blood of his cross. Amen. May the peace that passes all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ, our Lord. This has been a message from Emmaus Church, LCMS. We thank you for listening, and we invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. That's www.emmauspasco.org.